Good morning. Isn't it crazy it's already time for O-Kids in school again? We're still in our summer series, but I guess it's sort of over. Um, What's well, good to be with you again this morning. We're going to be looking at a passage from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament today. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah 29. If you've got your bulletin, um, it's printed on the back there. So read along with me. This is Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 9. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You guys got all that? <laughs> it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be able to open your word and hear your revelation to us this morning. I pray that you, by your spirit, would make your word come alive and move our hearts in whatever way you choose. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. When I was in college, I went to a Bible study with this girl named Judy. And she was from East Tennessee, very Southern, very sweet, a little bit ditzy. And uh, one day she, she sat down across from me and some of my friends at lunch in the cafeteria and she looked orange. And it was very clear that she had been going to a tanning bed, but she looked orange to the point that it was like, we were almost like whispering, like we were concerned about her, like this is weird. And so I didn't know how to broach it. So I was like, hey, something's different. And she's like, oh, I've been going to the tanning bed. And I was like, oh, couldn't tell. Um, <laughs> And in my 19-year-old mind, the tactful thing that I said was, can't you get cancer from those things? And she replied in a sweet southern accent, yeah, I think you can, but my pastor told me Jesus is coming back soon and it's all going to burn anyway. <laughs> and I just said, okay. 
Because what can you really say when somebody plays that card? And I, I want to point out that at the core of what Judy was saying is something really beautiful. It's the great Christian hope that Jesus is coming back. It's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that it's imminent. And we know that we're going to have incorruptible resurrection bodies. That is the great Christian hope. So it's a very good hope. It's just a poor application. Because it's as if she was saying, like, Jesus is coming back, so eat junk food and don't brush your teeth. It's all going to burn. And in reality, I think what Jesus wants his people to do when we ponder his imminent return is not to live more selfishly, but to give ourselves away. Because our salvation isn't just about the afterlife. It's for right now. Our salvation is for the life of the world to bring God's glory to the earth. So the passage that we're looking at today is a piece of our history as the people of God. And it's a letter to Jewish exiles in Babylon. And I understand that may not mean anything to you. I hope that it will by the end of our time together this morning. But it's an important turning point in the people of God. But it's also the word of God, which is living and active. So I believe, even with these obscure Hebrew names, that this passage has something to say to us this morning. So here's our roadmap. We're going to look at the history leading up to this passage. Then we're going to look at the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles. And then we're going to talk about what that has to do with us. So... Verse 1 tells us that this passage is a letter that Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem to the exiles who are in Babylon. So before we dive into the letter, I want to briefly describe to you the context. And I'll be honest, until I studied these things deeply in seminary, I really didn't understand what the exile was or why it happened or where it fit into the history. So if you don't, that's okay. Um, but all those little obscure prophets with weird names, if you don't know where the exile fits in history, it, those just seem really obscure, obscure and like they're angry old men and we tend to skip over those, but they're all usually having something to do with the exile. So we're going to talk about that. Um, so historically speaking, the exile was when a major power took over part of Israel and deported them to their own country. And it happened at a couple different times by a couple different countries. What we're specifically talking about today is when Babylon conquered part of Israel, the southern part of Israel, which is called the kingdom of Judah, and took them into exile. But theologically speaking, exile is the discipline of a loving father. And he's disciplining his people so that they'll come back to him, that they might be blessed. And in order to understand why he's disciplining them, we're going to look at a little bit of the history before the exile. So uh, I think most of you know there was a prophet named Moses, and he gave the people of God the Ten Commandments. I preached a couple weeks ago on Sabbath, which is the Fourth Commandment. But the Ten Commandments were part of a covenant that God gave his chosen people. And basically, through the covenant... He said, keep this covenant and you'll be blessed and I'll make my dwelling among you. Don't keep it and you'll be cursed. And in Leviticus 26, God puts it this way. If they break the curse or I mean, if they break the covenant, 
He says, I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will scatter you among the nations. So this is actually what is already happening in Jeremiah when he's writing this letter. And if, you, if you've ever read the Old Testament, Genesis is pretty exciting because it's a lot of narratives. It's stories and likable characters. And then you get to Exodus and it's some narrative, but then it gets into obscure laws. And then you read like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and it's lots of laws. And they get weird and specific about what you do that makes you unclean and how do you get clean again and what what's in the temple and how do you carry out the ordinances in the temple. And it can all seem overwhelming and even cruel and arbitrary, if we're being honest. It seems really foreign to us. But God desperately wants to be with his people. And he loves them and he knows that what, be- what is best for them is his presence, himself. And so he gave them very specific instructions. When he made the world, it was perfect. And Adam and Eve got to dwell in God's presence. But when they sinned, it corrupted creation. And we were no longer able to dwell in God's presence. And so in giving them all these laws, he's basically saying the earth is not holy. So here's how we can make one space holy, the temple we're going to make it holy so that I can dwell among you. So all of these obscure laws are actually, they show us the holiness of God, but it's also showing us the lengths that God will go to, to be among his people. And I would say that that's the whole point of the Bible. It's God showing us the lengths that he will go to, to dwell among his people, even to the length of sending his own son to die for us. But Israel didn't do so well, did they? King David came along and everything was good. They were in the promised land. There was prosperity. He fought a lot of battles, but peace came. But within two generations, the Israelites were fighting over who should be the next king. So the north separated from the south. And the northern kingdom, by this point that we're at in Jeremiah 29, had already been conquered and taken into exile by Assyria. So the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, is where we're kind of camping out today. And Judah is where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. And that's where Jeremiah is writing this letter from. Jeremiah was the last prophet before the exile of the kingdom of Judah to Babylon. And Jeremiah's main role as a prophet was to plead with Judah to repent, to quit following false prophets and worshiping false gods and to quit breaking the covenant. So he's basically telling them, God is not all talk. If you keep doing this stuff, your city's going to be destroyed, your temple's going to be destroyed, and you're going to be scattered among the nations. So basically, everybody saw Jeremiah as a huge bummer. I mean, they didn't like him. He wasn't telling them anything that they wanted to hear. And as you'd probably guess, Judah didn't turn from evil. So Babylon, which was the big world power at the time, laid siege to Jerusalem for three months. And a lot of Jerusalem was destroyed and a lot of prominent people had already been exiled to Babylon. So 
verses 1 and 2 gives us a long list of people who were already in exile, including the king and officials and priests, etc. In other words, the most powerful and important people were already in exile in Babylon, which is significant because who wasn't in exile in Babylon? Jeremiah was still back home, which tells us that they didn't see Jeremiah as in being important enough to come. The Babylonians and the Israelites didn't see Jeremiah as important enough to come. But it's interesting because they did have prophets, or at least people that they considered prophets. If you look at verse 9 of our passage, it says, It's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So, to recap, part of Judah, part of the Israelites are already in Babylon. Jeremiah is still back in Israel, and he's sending a letter to the exiles in Babylon. You with me? Okay. And this is what the letter says, starting in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So he says, build, plant, and eat. Food and shelter. That means life right? That's what we have to do to live. So in saying this, God is basically saying, go make a life there. Babylon is not going to be a place of death for you. It's going to be a place of life for you. And he goes on in verse six to say, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. This kind of harkens back to the creation when God gave humanity one charge, he said, be fruitful and multiply. So all these years later, when everything seems to be so bleak, he's saying, it's still the same, even in Babylon, even in exile, be fruitful and multiply. But the Jews were resistant to this idea. And it's, it's interesting, it's kind of like hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be A, just living in those days, but B, living in exile. But they they weren't like slaves. They were actually allowed to kind of keep their culture and even have their own government and their own religious practices. And they were allowed to build and plant and eat and have community and things like that. But they didn't want to. Because the false prophets were telling them basically what they wanted to hear. They, it was, they were basically saying, it won't be long. This is a minor hiccup. We just got to straighten some things out, and then we're going to be going back. That's what they wanted to hear, because it would mean they didn't have to unpack. It would mean they didn't have to invest, but it also means that they weren't really living. They were just waiting. Their lives were on hold. But if you keep reading Jeremiah past the passage that we look at today, you'll see that God tells the exiles in this letter that it's going to be 70 years before they get to go home. And I want you to think about that. Most of these exiles were never going to see home again. And there were going to be children born in Babylon that were going to have no memory of Judah. But God is telling them, build Take root in this place that's not your home. Make a home. When Brandy and I go on vacation, which we don't do anymore because we have a baby, but I remember what it was like when we went on vacation. Whether, whether it was like 
for two days or a week, um, Brandy will always unpack her suitcase and if they're like closets and drawers, she'll put all her clothes away. And I tend to just kind of leave everything in my suitcase and, and sort of live at it. Because I'm thinking if I, don't, if I don't unpack, then when we leave, I don't have to pack, right? I just get that pile of dirty clothes that I throw in the corner. But Brandy's thinking, this is where we're living for the next few days. And so I want to move in and make it feel like home. And uh, I really think that the way Brandy approaches it is a better way to live. Um, in fact, I've tried to start doing that, to just be present. Um, but it's the way God is also calling the exiles to live, to plant, to build, to eat, and to multiply, and be present, and invest, to take root. In verse 7, God calls the exiles to do something that is radical and counterintuitive. He says, But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So pray to the Lord on behalf of Babylon is what he's telling these people. And this is radical for a bunch of reasons, but I'm going to give you two. For one thing, the Jews associated prayer with the temple because they associated the presence of God with the temple. And where they are in Babylon, it is... If you measure a straight line from Babylon to Jerusalem, it's 500 miles. So they're 500 miles away from home. They're 500 miles away from the temple. And they're living among foreign people with foreign gods in foreign temples. And they're thinking, how are we supposed to pray to the Lord? But this is where the rubber is going to hit the road for the people of Judah because they're going to learn experientially what God has trying to has been trying to tell them all along. God is not a local God. God is not a national God. God is from eternity to eternity, and there is no place on earth that his people can go that he did not create and sustain, even in Babylon. The second reason that a call to seek Babylon's welfare and pray for them is radical is that God has never explicitly commanded the Jews to pray for their enemies up until this point. And if you think about it, it's more common in the Old Testament to hear people pray for judgment and, um, you know, destruction on their enemies. There are Psalms that David says some pretty wicked stuff about what he wants God to do to his enemies that, like, we're probably not going to sing on a Sunday morning because it's just, it's kind of weird, Right? But I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You've been taken captive and forced to go a long way from home. And not like to Tallahassee or something like that, but as the crow flies, it's 500 miles away. But the way they had to travel around the Euphrates, it was a 900-mile trip. That would be brutal in a car. But think about the way they had to travel. 900 miles and many of them didn't make the trip. And then when they arrived there, they've been forced to leave their home, which has been partially destroyed. They're 900 miles away in a foreign land among the very people who destroyed their home. Are you going to want to pray for those people and seek their welfare? It's a pretty hard pill to swallow. 
but God gives them a reason to seek the welfare. Look at the last phrase in verse seven. God says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, in Babylon's welfare, you will find your welfare. And when we read welfare, we probably think about economics. We might think about uh, government aid to people. But the word welfare in the original Hebrew is the one Hebrew word that probably most of you know, which is shalom. And shalom can be translated as peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, tranquility. It can be translated all of these ways because it encompasses all of these things. And God calls the exiles to seek these things for their captors. And in bringing shalom to Babylon, the exiles will find their own shalom. So that's a big piece of the history of Israel, which is kind of like, cool story, bro. What does that have to do with me? It probably won't surprise you that I am going to suggest to you that we are all exiles. And it has less to do with our location and more to do with our condition because we are created for relationship with God. But that was broken. God's presence is the home that our hearts long for, but we can't dwell in his presence the way Adam and Eve did. We're all strangers in a strange land. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And in 1 Peter, Peter refers to the Christians he's writing to as sojourners and exiles. We're not home, we're exiles. And in fact, we were all born into slavery in a foreign land, slaves to sin. This is a metaphor that I like to use to explain the gospel. We were all born in a prison cell and those three walls and those bars are all we know. We think it's the entire world. But then Jesus comes and he unlocks the door. He sets us free from the bondage to sin and he gives us the key, which is the gospel. And he says, I'm going home to prepare a place for you. Take this key of the gospel and set as many prisoners free as you can. So here's the big question. Do we still have the freedom to walk back in the cell? We absolutely do. Every time we choose to sin, every time we choose fear over God's ways, every time we look at how things appear or how things feel, or I uh, appeal to my own logic as opposed to God's word, I'm choosing to walk back in the cell. But the difference is the door is no longer locked. So we have a decision. We can stay in the cell or we can take the key of the gospel and go set prisoners free. And here's why I'm telling you this. When we go to appeal to the other prisoners, the thing that we're going to run into is they're not going to believe that there's anything other than their cell. And so our lives outside of that prison have to be more compelling than their lives in the cell. 
But if we have bad attitudes, my mom calls it being a sourpuss. I don't know if that's a Southern expression. That's definitely a Southern expression. <laughs> but uh, if that's how we live, people are not going to see the hope of the gospel in us and they're not going to be compelled to step out of that cell. When I was in seminary, one of the first people I met was this guy that we'll call Trevor. And like a lot of people uh, at seminary, he had moved from out of state and he immediately just started complaining about Florida all the time and talked about how awesome his state was and how he hated being here. And he was honestly a drag to be around. And we were just thinking, well, go back to your state then. <laughs> and I realize this is petty, but I've been to a state. It's great. I don't ever want to go there again because it, it has that connotation. And in fact, there's a food product that his state's known for. And when I see it in the grocery store, I won't get it. <laughs> but on the other hand, I had a friend named Richard and he's from Montgomery, Alabama. I'm getting to do lots of Southern accents today, which sometime I'll tell you why I don't have a Southern accent because I totally did, but I lost it. Um, but that's a different story. But so Richard was from Montgomery, Alabama. He and his wife moved down here and it was temporary. They knew it was temporary, but they bought a house. They got jobs. They made it their home. And uh, Brandy and I got close to Richard and his wife and we explored Florida and did day trips to the beach and things like that. And I've got to be honest with you, I have never considered Montgomery, Alabama a vacation destination. But to hear Richard talk about his home, his city, and, and to see the pride he has and to hear his heart to take what he learned in seminary and take it back to be a blessing to Montgomery, it made us want to go there. So we've gone a few times and we love it because Richard loves it. See, both Trevor and Richard were exiles in a way because they had to live away from home for a temporary amount of time, but one of them chose to fight it and the other embraced it and brought Shalom with him and made us want to know what his city was like. So this morning I have three questions for you. And the first one, probably the most important one is, what is your Babylon? And when I say that, I mean, where do you find yourself right now that you didn't necessarily choose to be? That you're hoping it's temporary. And the second question is, what does it mean for you to seek the Shalom of your Babylon? What does it mean to seek the welfare of your Babylon? And the third question is, what does it mean to take root where you are? Most of us in this room can't say that we're exactly where we want to be in life. Uh, some of you are starting your senior year and you'd rather skip past it and graduate and move on. Some of you just want to be married. Some of you just want to get the kids out of the house. Some of you are hoping for a promotion. Almost all of us are seeking for things, which is good, but there's something about that that makes us discontent about where we are. So what is your Babylon right now? The place that you didn't choose, that you find yourself waiting. And what does it mean to seek the shalom of your Babylon? It's most likely doing exactly what you do, but doing it with faith, hope, and love. There's a propensity for Christians to think that if we're not doing something that's overtly ministry, um, 
that it just doesn't matter much. When I was in seminary, I tell lots of stories about that. I, it was only four years of my life. I've got other stories that you'll hear sometime. But when I was in seminary, I worked a minimum wage job putting greeting cards in boxes. And I didn't give a rip about that job. I didn't even give a rip about the greeting cards. Um, I had a pretty bad attitude because it just felt menial. And I thought of ministry as something that was going to happen after graduation. And I thought life was going to start after graduation. And because of that, I missed a lot because ministry and life were happening all around me. And I had a chance to bring shalom to the other people who were stuffing boxes and cards, but I don't think I did that very much. You may be in a job where you think anyone could do this job and it's pointless, but I want to tell you that anyone is not doing that job. You are. And you're there for a purpose. Maybe you won't be there forever, but do your job in such a way that when you leave, your presence is missed. By doing your job well, you're bringing shalom to that place. So when you're doing your work, if you're a student, um, if you're a stay-at-home mom and you have so many things that go unsung, the things you do that your kids will never get, um, let this be your guiding principle. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat, or drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. The reality here at Orangewood is that we're in sort of a waiting period because um, we're waiting to see who the Lord is going to call to be our lead pastor. And we don't know how long that's going to take. We don't know who it's going to be. Is he going to be a preacher? Are we going to like him? And there may be a propensity to kind of feel like you have one foot in and one foot out until that man is here and you see how things shake out. But I honestly believe that God's word for all of us, even here in Jeremiah 29, is to take root and invest in the shalom of Orangewood right now. Because this is where you are right now. And the church is not a business or a space. It's the bride of Christ. It's the people of God. Wherever we go, we are the church. And there's one man that we need for the church to go on, and it's not a pastor. It's Jesus Christ. So I encourage you guys, take root, invest now. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know if we get it tomorrow, but we are here and we can bring shalom to this city. If you're in a job, if you're in a relationship, if you're in a situation that's life-sucking rather than life-giving, you need to ask yourself, what needs to change my situation or the way I see my situation. And I'm going to do a throwback to some of my R&Rs, but maybe God wants to reframe the way you see your situation, not as something that you're stuck in, but something you're placed in to bring God shalom. And maybe God's calling you to quit complaining about your situation and change it, but that will require you to take some R&R. See what I did there? It's going to require you to remain in Christ and risk and step out of the boat and trust in the Lord because changing your situation is always scary. Or maybe your situation feels like it's sucking the life out of you, but it's actually because you're neglecting all the things that give you life and bring rest to your soul. So 
Joe asked how I was going to tie the garden gnome in. Maybe you need to get out in the garden again. Maybe you need to get that old truck running. Maybe you need to pick up the guitar. Maybe you need to get coffee with a friend. Maybe you just need to watch a dumb movie on Netflix and take a nap. But do something for rest. Do something to feed your soul so that you're not a sourpuss all the time. Because we've got work to do. We've got to go set prisoners free. We've got to bring shalom to this city. God gave us the gift of the gospel and we are called to go be a gift. So I encourage you, keep asking those questions. What's my Babylon? What does it mean to bring shalom to my Babylon? What does it mean to take root here and now? Even if I'm not where I want to be, even if it feels like Everything I love and know has been destroyed and I'm 900 miles away with my enemies. How can you live and take root and invest now so that you're sowing into the shalom of your community? If you're here this morning, I really hope that if you're not a Christian, you're hearing that there's so much more than exile. There's so much more than the prison cell. You have a creator who's calling you home. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die so that you can live with him for eternity. And the good news of the gospel is that we don't need a physical space like a temple. The exiles thought because they were far from home, because they were far from the temple, that they were far from the presence of God. But praise be to God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we put our faith in him, he makes our hearts the temple. He makes his dwelling place and his home with us. That's the good news of the gospel. So wherever you go, whether you're going home or if you're going to Babylon, you bring the presence of Christ with you. So exiles, you're not home but make a home here and show the people that you work with, the people that you go to school with, the people across the street, the kids you're raising, show all the people that you cross paths with what the kingdom of God is like. Show them what home is like. Show them what heaven's going to be like. Let's pray. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel that we can have peace that passes understanding here and now, even when things seem dark and grim. And we can rest in the fact that Jesus is coming back and he is going to wipe every tear from our eyes and he's going to make all things new. And we get to dwell in your presence forever and ever and ever. Lord, let us not ever cherish anything more than that. When we Seek the comfort of our prison cell. Let us remember that there is a big world that you created outside of those walls and we are no longer slaves. Thank you for the gospel and the hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.